Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. COVID-19 and its spread continue to dominate news across the country, and the national park system isn't left out of that news. Big Bend National Park closed to the public this past week because one of the park's employees came down with the disease and possibly exposed others. We also reported on the issue of diversity, or rather the lack of diversity, in the National Park Service. And we told you that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has agreed with a lower court's ruling that grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem cannot lose their protections under the Endangered Species Act because the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did not rely on sound science in proposing such a move. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we're asking you to listen closely the next time you visit a national park. What do you hear? What can you hear? What might you hear? We'll share some of the sounds in a minute with hopes they inspire you to let your ears play a greater role in your enjoyment during your national park vacation. We also discuss a new paper just out that explores how climate change is influencing the type of forests we see in national parks in the western United States. The researchers' conclusion? The forests you see today in parks such as Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Glacier might not reappear after a devastating wildfire. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Have you ever, on your national park trip, ever just stopped to listen? While there was a story making the rounds in years past that the quietest spot in the United States could be found in the whole rainforest of Olympic National Park, there are also plenty of sounds in the parks to listen for. For instance, if you find yourself visiting Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, drive the Trail Ridge Road up to the park's roof and stop and listen to the sounds. The wind really is amazing up there, as the following audio cut from the Sound and Light Ecology team at Colorado State University discovered.
Of course, you can hear wind in a lot of places outside the national park system. But there are a few places where you can hear the puckering of boiling mud. The best place in the park system, of course, is Yellowstone National Park. Just drive the loop road north of Lake Hotel and pull over at Mud Volcano on the southern edge of the Hayden Valley. Walk the short trail to Dragon's Mouth Spring and listen for a while. Of course, there's a lot of wildlife to listen to in the national park system, but you have to be patient. At Sequoia National Park, in the foothills, head into the blue oak forest and see if you can't catch the hooting, well, it's really not hooting, but catch the sound of western screech owls. Another animal sound you won't soon forget is that of coyotes yapping at each other. The Sound and Light Ecology team went to Mesa Verde National Park in southwestern Colorado to make the next recording. For a bonus, head to Rocky Mountain National Park and see if you can't catch both coyotes and elk making noise. Either one by itself is amazing, but together, well, it's not a symphony, but it's definitely interesting.
for just the pure sound of bugling elk, Yellowstone National Park is right up there with Rocky Mountain and some others. Take a listen. As the sound of wind blowing across the roof of Rocky Mountain National Park demonstrated at the top of this podcast, animals aren't the only sound makers in the national park system. For something really unusual, and something you probably don't want to hear in person, listen to this sound of an avalanche from Denali National Park and Preserve. And if you're a fan of historical reenactments, See if you can identify this sound. For those who couldn't figure it out, it was Reveille being sounded at Fort Larned National Historical Park in Kansas. For me, one of the most unusual sounds in the animal kingdom is the following. Did you recognize it? While you might have thought it was a hungry bear, actually it was bison at Yellowstone National Park. Here are two more hard-to-identify animal sounds.
the first somewhat shrill one was from killer whales, also known as orcas, at Glacier Bay National Park in Alaska, while the second was an American alligator at Everglades National Park. Sounded a bit like the bison from Yellowstone, didn't it? Now, for bird lovers, see if you can match these sounds to their makers. The first was a Hawaiian petrel, recorded in Haleakala National Park in Hawaii. The second were sandhill cranes, captured at Denali National Park in Alaska. And the last was from an Anhinga at Everglades National Park in Florida. Now, here are some sounds that likely could ruin your National Park vacation. As you can hear in this section, even being far out in the middle of the backcountry canyons of Colorado, humanity's footprints are present. Listen to this airplane flying high overhead among a choir of coyotes. Finally, I'll leave you with one of the most magnificent choruses you might ever hear in the park system. And if you ever catch it in person, you'll never forget it.
Thanks to the sound and light ecology team at Colorado State University and staff in the National Park System for recording those sounds. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy The Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. National park settings in much of the West are thick with forests of pines, Douglas fir, and other vegetation that has adapted to the climate in that part of the country. And those forests and vegetation have adapted to wildfires, specifically to naturally revegetate areas that have burned. But with climate change bringing higher summer temperatures, less rain in places, and more frequent and hotter wildfires, how will those forests react and look like three or four decades down the road. A new study just out, with contributions from more than 20 researchers, tries to paint a picture of what we might expect in forests from southern Arizona to northern Montana. To discuss the findings, we've asked one of the co-authors, Camille Stevens-Ruman, assistant professor in the Department of Forest and Rangeland Stewardship at Colorado State University, to join us. Welcome to The Traveler, Camille. Thanks for having me. Now, Professor, the bottom line of the study is that the forest that was there before the wildfire may not return. That's a pretty strong statement to many people who have grown accustomed to driving into, say, Yellowstone or Rocky Mountain National Park and just fallen in love with those magnificent lodgepole pine forests and the wonderful piney scent. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all, when we think about our national parks and national forests, we have uh, this kind of love of what we think about them having been, right? Especially in our lifetimes. And for the most part, that's these beautiful, thick, mature forests. And the truth is, when we talk about having these large wildfires coupled with climate change, we may not continue to have those forests uh, be the dominant in a lot of those places that are experiencing more frequent fires and continuing to be stressed by, by climate change. Now, part of the study says that uh, there could be a lack of seed resources, um, warmer and drier post-fire climate, and more frequent reburning. 
Is that um, because we're going to see hotter and hotter wildfires that basically um, sterilize the the ground and the seeds? So when we talk about um, seed availability, often what we're talking about is, are there trees within proximity that could provide from a living tree a seed source? Because a lot of times, you know, most of our conifer species in the Western U.S. are not really adapted to survive in the soil. So we're relying on them repopulating from nearby trees. And when we talk about this change of fires, uh, of wildfires that we're seeing, where we're getting these really large, high severity patches, where there's not a single living tree for, you know, a thousand acres, or even 50,000 acres, those areas, there's just not the proximity and the availability of trees to regrow into the center of those patches. So that's kind of where that comes from. It's a, you know, it's coupling with both climate con- contributing to that increase in wildfires um, and wildfire size, and also just our li- past land management that has allowed o- a lot of tr- forests to become overgrown and have these continuous stands that are readily available to burn. Um, and so in the past where you might've had a 10 acre fire here or a 15, 50 acre fire here that would have broken up the landscape. Now we're talking about this continuous landscape that when it burns, all of the trees are consumed, leaving very little to come back. So we're less worried about that sterilization than what neighboring trees might be around to re-inhabit those, those areas. Yeah, I'd like to touch on something you you mentioned there. Um, in, in this study, it says that uh, ongoing fire suppression in some regions has resulted in a fire deficit. What do you mean by that? So a fire deficit is thinking about that historically, as you mentioned at the beginning, these ecosystems and these tree species are adapted to having fire at a certain frequency. And a lot of forests, especially those lower elevation um, think like ponderosa pine and Douglas fir forests are often adapted to as frequent as fires as every about two years. And so when you have, you know, a hun- we're looking at now about 140 years of pretty active fire suppression across the Western U.S., at least over 100 years, that when a forest is adapted to those two to 20 year fire return intervals, we're now looking at several cycles off of before of having those fires. So we end up having what we call a fire deficit where we're not having fires often enough to kind of maintain that historic structure, you know, maintain a more open forest that has minimal fuels that really wouldn't result in like the large catastrophic fires that we hear about on the news, right? They would end up being just, even if a natural start happened in those more historic landscapes, it would probably burn an understory and maybe kill a couple trees versus these, you know, large mega fires. The study also said that uh, we could see by mid-century decreases in uh, post-fire ponderosa pine and Douglas fir in parts of Idaho and Montana. Is that something that, you know, we might expect a change in the appearance of parks like Yellowstone or Glacier or Grand Teton? Absolutely. I mean, when you think about what happened in Yellowstone and Um, 1988, with all the 1988 Yellowstone fires, those were kind of um, a tipping point of realizing that we needed, that these forests were going to change and were needed fire to a certain degree. But what we've seen since then is as fires have interacted with that historic, you know, those fires from 1988, we're increasing that, 
that size of high severity patches in a lot of cases where fires are overlapping, meaning that when we think about those things that are limiting tree regeneration, um, like distance to seed source, we get into those, um, we're likely increasing the distance um, with those interacting fires. And so we end up having, we, it is very likely in a lot of those cases that that we might not see forests coming back. Again, this doesn't mean that we're going to stop seeing forests in all of our national parks everywhere, right? You know, in Yellowstone, as well as like Glacier National Park, um, a colleague of mine has measured 2 million seedlings per hectare. So that's basically just a carpet of baby trees, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so there certainly are places like that, but I think the, the flip side of that is that there are a lot of forests that have been kind of on the edge of whether or not that particular site can climatically support or continue to support a, a forest. And these fires are kind of precipitating that ecosystem change, even if maybe the adult trees could continue to live there for another century if they hadn't burned. Right, right. And I believe the, the paper points that out, that is, this is not going to be a wholesale turnover of the landscape of what we're used to seeing. Um, I believe it said in some parts of the inner mountain west, you know, it might be 1.6% to 15% of, of the forest area could be prone to this type of ecological change. And then in, in some areas of the southwest, uh, perhaps 30% of forested areas. So it, it, there's a lot of variables in play here. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you know, one of the things to think about, you know, if you're thinking about a lot of places in the inner mountain West where we have these huge elevational gradients and we're used to having, you know, a ponderosa pine forest at one elevation, it, it's probably not going to continue to maintain at that elevation. It might move up, you know, we hope that it moves kind of up the mountainside, so to speak, with climate change. But those lower forests are really the most vulnerable to drop out. And that's why we have a higher predicted proportion in a place like the Southwest, because those forests are already um, at the edge of their climatic tolerance compared to like the Northwest. Hmm. There's obviously a lot of ecological factors in play here. I mean, beyond just the forests themselves. I mean, you've got all the the forest dependent species, um, you know, from you know birds to to squirrels and whatnot, and then pine beetles. Um, were you able to take a look at at how? this type of changing scenario could impact the, the broader ecosystem? So we didn't in this study look at like pine beetle um, fire interactions. There has been multiple authors um, on that paper that have looked at those kind of um, interact interacting effects. And to give the classic scientist response is it depends. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, some... Some forests, when we have bark beetle and wildfires kind of interacting at a similar time frame, one could exacerbate or increase the effects of the other. Like when you have um, all the red needles still on the trees, right? In a logical pine forest, that's a really much more flammable system potentially compared sure. to an ecosystem that's maybe 10 years out after a bark beetle outbreak. That's not going to necessarily increase at least that canopy fire because now you might have standing dead trees but their crowns aren't connecting and then when we talk about the recovery again it's really dependent on the specific species because some are really great regenerators like lodgepole pine 
um, often does fine even with bark beetle and fire interactions, whereas some other forest types might not do as well. Um, or you might see a shift in dominance, right? One of the things that we have been seeing in Colorado with our more recent spruce beetle outbreaks is the kind of shift in dominance from a spruce, spruce and fir dominated forest to a fir dominated forest. And so when you talk about resilience, if it matters to you that there is spruce in that ecosystem, then you're losing some of those ecosystem properties, but you're not necessarily losing the forest as a whole. Now, getting to some of those uh, lower elevation forests, um, you know, the lodgepole pine, is this something that um, the forest won't turn over into a different type of tree, um, but but rather take longer to, to rejuvenate? Or, or should we possibly expect a different type of uh, scenario when we drive into the parks? Yeah, so I think... Um we can expect, or it's hard to say for sure, right? There, there's always the possibility, even though we predict we'll likely see a lot of ecosystem change as a result of fires and climate. There's always the possibility that we have a good, you know, a couple good years that allow for tree regeneration to happen. But in all likelihood, a lot of those places will transition to something else. In some cases, when you're talking about those lowest elevation forests, um, like ponderosa pine or Douglas fir, we might see a transition to a non-forest, so something like a grassland or a shrubland, um, maybe some pinyon and juniper ecosystems. In other cases, you might just see a shift in forest type. So something like that was once a lodgepole pine forest becomes a ponderosa pine forest. Um, and some of that's going to depend on the elevation and the um, conditions of that ecosystem or where that looks ecosystem is located kind of on the mountainside and latitudinally. But I think when it comes to, you know, if, if the value we want is trees on a site, you know, there's a lot of things in thinking about management that people are starting to consider is like, should we be moving trees to places that we might be suitable in the future? Um, do we plant trees that are maybe adapted to a warmer climate, you know, same species, but adapted to a warmer climate from its southern range or a lower elevation forest or something. But, you know, that's also tricky to know for sure. And I think that's, you know, that, that's something that's much more a part of the conversation in our national forests than our national parks, because the, often the mission of national parks is to kind of let things be as they will. So Absolutely. when you're talking about driving into those big, um, iconic national parks, we are likely going to see a shift in what, what ecosystem we expect there. Uh, and, and oftentimes it will be not another forest, but rather a, um, a grassland or a shrub dominated ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, you, you had mentioned the 1988 wildfires in Yellowstone and, and I'm old enough to say that I was on the ground, um, in 1988 reporting on those wildfires and, you know, my initial my initial takeaway was, oh my gosh, Yellowstone's being destroyed. The forests are being wiped out. And then, as I as I went back, because um, I, I rotated through a couple times during that summer, it, it really gave me a, an appreciation for nature and how resilient it really is. But it did leave a totally changed a totally changed landscape in some places that you know took a number of decades to to recover and and. Is this something that we might expect down the road? 
Yeah, I, I think you I think you bring up a good point is that we, you know, we have kind of this inherent, at least as Western European settlers, uh, this idea that fire is bad. And, you know, and, and in part because of the fires we have experienced, Yellowstone was really impactful for a lot of people. And in a lot of places, there's been some wonderful studies that have shown that those ecosystems are coming back great. You know, they look amazing. They, if you walk through some of those 1988 Yellowstone fires now, uh, you'll be in a forest with trees above your head, you know? Right. right. <laughs> um, and, I, and so it's, it's been interesting, I think, for all of us that were on this paper, um, is that we, as fire ecologists, often try to impart the message that not all fires are bad. And it's been interesting with this added stressor of climate change that now even we're starting to acknowledge that there are um, a lot of fires that are outside of the normal for these ecosystems and are going to cause a lot of change compared to what we have come to expect from these ecosystems. Even those that may have regenerated 30 years ago are now not, not doing as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely an interesting time. And uh, your, your paper really provides a lot of food for thought. I mean, not only um, in, in trying to envision what the forest of mid-century might look like or later part of the century might look like, but, but as you mentioned earlier, all the different research that it brings to mind that needs to be done um, to study what uh, uh, associated impacts there will be. And certainly um, the land managers have a lot to mull and, and figure out in terms of how they're going to approach these types of uh, wildfires and the impacts that they leave behind. Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we've been operating that under the assumption that these ecosystems are going to come back and Unfortunately, we're seeing more and more that they probably won't. Yeah, yeah. We've been talking today with Camille Stevens-Rubin, an assistant professor in the Department of Forest and Rangeland Stewardship at Colorado State University. She's a co-author of a new paper that just recently came out, Wildfire-Driven Forest Conversion in Western North American Landscapes. Camille, thanks so much for joining us and uh, look forward to continuing the discussion down the road in terms of... uh, how land managers might react to this and and what else we might see associated with these changes. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's our show for this week. Special thanks to Dr. Jacob Job, who leads the Sound and Light Ecology team at Colorado State University for his wonderful recordings of nature. You can learn more about the team's work by searching the internet for Sound and Light Ecology team. For The Traveler... This is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Park's Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.